Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John White, WebMD's Chief Medical Officer and host of the Spotlight On series from WebMD's Health Discovered podcast. For this special two-part episode, you'll hear up-close and personal journeys about being diagnosed with a rare type of cancer, multiple myeloma. I started in myeloma nearly 25 years ago. And at that time, the average expectation of life in someone with myeloma was maybe one to two years. But even just in this last 10 to 12 years, we have doubled, if not tripled, the average survival of patients. I saw a new patient this week, and we had this conversation that based on what we've done over the last decade, my expectation is that patient's going to live more than 10 years. Listen to Health Discovered on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. This Is Civity features people who are building relationships to dismantle inequities and strengthen communities grounded in respect and empathy. In this episode, we talk with John Wood Jr., National Ambassador for Braver Angels, an organization also working to build relationships across the divides that fracture Americans, including red-blue, class, and race and ethnicity. Braver Angels works at the grassroots level, in communities, on college campuses, with local organizations to bring people together in substantive ways. They're also looking for ways to heal the nation in the wake of the 2020 election by focusing on commitments to nonviolence and direct communication among people who voted differently. Welcome to John Wood Jr. What is Braver Angels trying to do here? So what Braver Angels is seeking to do um, is to essentially build out an infrastructure for restoring the spirit of American democracy and the bonds that exist, the relationships that exist between the American people um, in the context of civil society. Um, so if you just judge us by the mainstream media coverage of our organization, you'll know a bit about our workshops and some of the particular things that we do. But the larger project uh, has to do with scaling up an effort uh, to rebuild the bonds of relationships across society and to leverage that into the direction of stabilizing our institutions. Um, and so it's fairly ambitious what it is uh, Braver Angels is after. And within that context, uh, my role has tended to focus on helping to sort of articulate and conceptualize the, the philosophy behind that mission to speak it out in the out in the wider world and uh, to help sort of craft the narrative and tell the story um, that goes along with that in terms of who we see ourselves as being as Americans, right and left, what are the values that tie us, and to give voice to that through podcasts and essays and videos and other sorts of things. And so um, yeah, I've tried to amplify and give shape to that message in the context of my own role. You brought up, and I think it's no secret, that we are in this really, I mean, I keep saying ugly time, but very vitriolic time. It's very difficult, it seems, to have a conversation with someone who disagrees. I'm curious to know how Braver Angels walks into that space. What are some of the strategies you use to get people to sit down and pull away from that knee jerk that more and more of us are starting to have when we try to 
discuss this stuff? Well, there are various ways that we get people involved in our programs, in our different events. And at this point, we have a number of different uh, formats and ways of engaging, you know, Americans across differences and getting them to engage each other. Um, and so, I mean, you asked you ask the question, how do, how do we show up in that space? I guess the way we show up uh, in the context of our volunteers, our moderators, um, how, you know, me and my colleagues might produce uh, live public events is to sort of take on the role of maintaining the uh, sort of holding up holding up the bridge in the form of decorum and other particular sorts of uh, structured methods uh, by which Americans are able to sort of um, engage in a dialogue that allows them to see each other across the difference in experience without the conversation or the interaction going off the rails in an ad hominem direction. And so in the context of our workshops, um, we have, first of all, we have a number of different workshops. The, the original one for which we were best known is called a red and blue workshop, where we take small groups of folks from the left and from the right, and bring them together uh, with the moderator, not to argue or debate, but to speak from personal experience about why we see politics the way we do. And so quite literally marriage counseling applied to Republicans and relationships between Republicans and Democrats. I love that, by the way. That's fantastic. Marriage counseling is applied. <laughs> Very relevant, uh, you might you might imagine. In the context of our live forum events with public figures, if I'm moderating an event, my role is to try and allow each party in the conversation to get the fullness of their point out, to frame the conversation in the context of saying, look, we are each here because we have a common interest in the health of our civil society and the health of democracy. And so part of what we want to do is demonstrate our arguments through a spirit of good faith, right? And so, you know, or if, if I'm participating in a podcast, if my colleague April Lawson and chairing a debate is mediating between a bunch of different, uh, bunch of different speakers simultaneously, in everything we do, we're trying to hold the space for empathy without sacrificing authenticity, right? And honesty in terms of where we are coming from. And so that's, that's how we tend to show up in these conversations. And as far as how people find us, it's through word of mouth, it's through advertising, um, social media, media coverage, um, you know, pretty much any way we can get people in the door, uh, <laughs> we try to do it. You know, our work at Civity is is aligned in the sense that we call it the conversation before the conversation. Before we dig in, let's see each other's humanity, let's share stories, let's, you know, let's make that connection first, and then it's much more difficult to vilify. You, uh, alluded to the fact of how people find you. And I know that, you know, the 2016 election and the current president, that wasn't the beginning of our separation from each other, right? I mean, this is something that's been building. And that was more of a manifestation or a realization, I think, for a lot of people in the U.S. that, hey, wow, we're really separate. And I think so at the same time that we that we are so separate, the response to Braver Angels, it was at the time Better Angels, right after that election, also really revealed that there's a true and sincere desire among a lot of us or among a great many people in the U.S. to try to solve that and to try to get around it. And and I think that that gives me a little bit of hope. But if you can talk a little bit about that response versus the polarization in the media and, and in that moment in time. Braver Angels, as you said, it was originally Better Angels, um, had its first workshop 
pretty close to the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. Uh, it happened, uh, I believe, in South Lebanon, Ohio. Uh, the founders of the organization, David Blankenhorn, uh, Bill Doherty, who is um, the architect of many of our workshops, uh, uh, family therapist uh, by training, uh, professor of psychology, and uh, my colleague David Lapp, they brought together a group of folks on each side, folks who just voted for Trump and who just voted for Clinton. It was a three-day weekend where, you know, through a deliberate design, they tried to see if they could find common ground, and it was so successful that they decided ultimately to sort of take the show on the road and do shorter versions of that same workshop in the South and up and down the East Coast. Better Angels as an organization came out of that. That was, I think, the spring and summer of 2017, if I'm not mistaken. I started volunteering for Better Angels in um, autumn 2017, came on as a member of staff in, uh, the spring of, in the spring of the following year. The outpouring of support for what we were doing um, was very much organic. Again, it was sort of a word of mouth sort of thing. I mean, they literally were on a bus traveling through... The different states, uh, NPR, you know, picked up what we were doing and, uh, you know, ran a, ran a story and, you know, that sort of turned some heads in our direction. But ever since, you know, many people have gone out of their way to find us. People always come to us with fascinating stories and oftentimes sad stories, you know, of having lost relationships with parents, with children, with friends. And many people come to us out of a need to heal. Many other people come to us because... They want to be involved in political conversations, political organizing, just engaging the things that they care about, but they want to find a way to do it that circumvents the, um, the sort of institutionalized nastiness that comes with being active with the parties, oftentimes anyway. That response has been real, but of course it finds itself um, having to having to struggle to grow in the context of the massive tsunamis of vitriol, as you, as you said it, that just sort of crash in on us uh, due to the overwhelming, you know, fear and anxiety and, and I think deliberately stoked animosity that the American people are experiencing across the board. So the outpouring has been real, uh, but it has had to survive and grow in the midst of this larger climate um, of hostility. Yeah, you know, and that really resonates with me. My uh, my family and I are, uh, several members of my family and I are on opposite sides of the political spectrum, and there's lots of love there, but we cannot for the life of us have this conversation. And I want to desperately have a good conversation with them, and it always goes south. And I, I can do this work with people in the world, but I, yeah, I, I think... Um, I know I'm not alone, and you you alluded to it. There's these loved ones in our life that we... How are we not able to do this? How does it go so south? And, you know, I'm curious about your own uh, journey toward Braver Angels. Why did you decide to volunteer and connect with this organization? What what brought you to it? I come from a family that is, uh, well, so I'm biracial. I come from a family that is uh, uh, biracial and multicultural and, and ultimately bipartisan. I mean, my my mother is a Democrat. My father is a Republican. Um, my dad is is white. He was born in 1950s from the South originally. Uh, my mom is a bit younger, born in the early 60s. She's from inner city Los Angeles. Um, dad didn't become a Republican until later in life, but he was always sort of the traditionalist in uh, in my uh, in our household. And um, growing up, I just sort of was conscious of the fact that I lived at the intersection of you know different groups, I guess, different identities. And as I got older, I um, 
became politically active and um, through a series of steps that involved me working with the Obama campaign, falling in love with the message of hope and change, the idea of a post-racial and a post-partisan America, then ultimately sort of studying conservatism in, in hopes of being able to more effectively communicate with Republicans and then eventually realizing that I might have been a bit of a Republican myself <laughs> after I got to know myself a bit more, ultimately wound up finding myself running as a uh, well, I was a Republican nominee for Congress in Los Angeles in 2014. I ran against uh, Maxine Waters in that election cycle. Um, but I was an odd bird even then because I was a hope and change Republican, if you will. I mean, I, I very much held fast to the things that motivated me to, to, you know, step out in support of Obama's campaign in 2008. And that really sort of, you know, sealed my commitment to being politically politically active. I, you know, I tried to bring a depolarizing perspective to party politics and didn't really have an easy time with that, particularly when the Trump movement kind of came and asserted itself in the Republican Party. I sort of backed away from the party at that point, but I still wanted to be a force for opening up the space for people to communicate across political and racial uh, lines. And so ultimately that interest uh, led me to being connected with, uh, with Better Angels than Better Angels at the time and uh, went down and participated in a workshop in San Diego, met David Blankenhorn and the rest, as they say, is, uh, is, is history. That's an amazing perspective, especially the, the idea of wanting to pull together people across. And it's not just the red-blue line. I think it's really easy to be like, oh, it's all about Democrats, Republicans. But the reality is that so many people identify as independents and can't find their home inside the party spaces. So there are so many other divides. You mentioned also the racial divide. There's the economic divide. There's there's so many different divides um, over so many different things in our country. And I know that Braver Angels is also trying to think about those as well. Yeah, so it's interesting because um, Better Angels was founded to address the left-right divide. But in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in particular, we've become much more conscientious in engaging the black-white divide and you know racial issues uh, in general, and of course that's always been a theme in in my life uh, as well. Perhaps even more so, you know, to start with than the standard kind of partisan divide. And there's a relationship, of course, between the divisions that exist between us racially and religiously and the partisan divide. You know, these other divisions sort of fold into the partisan divide a bit. But it is important to be able to treat them as distinct um, social dynamics because ultimately they are, even if they are related. The challenge for us in this time has been to build up our competency in engaging some of these more particular subdivisions or you know, sub-polarities within American society. And I think that we've gone an awful long way in accomplishing that, particularly with respect to race issues. And um, yeah, I've sort of found myself occupying a very interesting role in that process, both within the organization and in sort of the larger landscape of, of racial dialogue, because it, it is a difficult thing for people to navigate. You know, part of what I have some gratitude for in my own life experience is that not just in being black and, you know, mixed black and, and, and white in my background, but also having having the backdrop of very different socioeconomic parts of my family behind me uh, gives me some sense in terms of, you know, how class realities differentiate us within races as well as between races. 
and um, giving me some perspective and weighing in on these issues that uh, hopefully has been been uh, constructive. You're listening to This Is Civity. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with John Wood Jr. of Braver Angels about breaking through divides to build community. As we were shifting into engaging, you know, racial issues um, head on in the aftermath of George Floyd, we had a Braver Angels debate uh, on um, on uh, defund the police, whether or not to defund the police. And so to say a little bit about our Braver Angels debate format, these are designed by my uh, colleague and friend, April Lawson. It's a parliamentary sort of debate model where we take uh, folks on either side of an issue. They don't have to be, you know, Republican or Democrat necessarily, but we have a resolution on the floor, resolve, defund the police in this case. And people, participants get to give a short speech uh, opposing or agreeing with the resolution on the table, followed by some Q&A from other folks who are participating. But the structure of the debate is such that the chairperson facilitates the back and forth. Uh, Questioners address their questions uh, to the chair uh, we do not um, allow the speakers to address each other directly. And the reason for that is because we want the focus to be on the sharing of experience and not on the battle of personalities and egos. And so we call this a debate, but the spirit of it is one of emphasizing intellectual humility. It's one of emphasizing authenticity and honesty and, and what our true beliefs happen to be. Uh, this isn't something that we keep score with respect to. But uh, it's a model that allows us, allows us to kind of take a, a step forward into a new frontier because we have to be able to show people a way to engage on political differences in real time as well, in a way that allows us to let the steam out while still you know, being able to engage the topics on the table. In one of our um, first Zoom-based versions of this, we had 200 people in a room. A friend of mine got up and gave a speech about why he is in favor of defunding the police. And he told a story that I hadn't heard him tell before about how he had actually seen a friend of his uh, die at the hands of police officers in basically in our community. He and I don't live far apart here in the South Los Angeles area. And uh, he was followed by a woman whose uh, father was a police officer. And she recounted stories of him serving the community and how much people appreciated him as a member of the community and not just somebody who, you know, commanded fear because he had a gun and a badge. Right. And so you have this um, trading of stories that takes place in a way that when it's done right, allows people to empathize more fully with each other and opens up the space for a deeper understanding of some of the nuances involved in the issues themselves. Right. I mean, that's a little bit of a, taste in terms of what it feels like to enter into these kinds of kinds of spaces. But we have all sorts of unlikely friendships that have come out of these interactions, both in the debates and the workshops, friendships between evangelical activists and LGBT activists, between Muslims and, and evangelical Christians on different sides of, of the political, uh, political divide. Um, and so it makes Braver Angels a pretty remarkable uh, community when you start to <laughs> dig into all the strange bedfellows, uh, strange bedfellows we make. You described the, the debate format and it reminds me, you mentioned marriage counseling earlier, and it reminds me of when I was in high school, we had conflict management and that was how we did it. You didn't talk to the person you were in conflict with, you talked to the conflict manager in front of you who relayed the story. It was a really effective way of like diffusing what was going on and helping everybody here. I'm not sure it's the same thing, but but that idea of not necessarily talking at each other, but of talking through someone else can be 
really effective, I think, in, in understanding and increasing understanding. And I really love that people are finding friendships and relationships and commonality across some of these really socially salient divides and differences. The um, catalyzing relationships that helped sort of cement the image of better angels in the in the larger kind of public imagination was between uh, two folks I'm happy to say are friend, friends of mine. One is a man named Greg Smith uh, from Ohio. Uh, both of them in Ohio, and the other, Kuyar Masashvi. Greg is an evangelical Christian and a former small-town police chief. Uh, Kuyar is an immigrant from Iran, also, a, I think, a head of his local Democratic Party uh, Central Committee. At the very first workshop, they had an, an incident, or an almost instant incident between the two of them, where I think, if I remember the story correctly, he approached Kuyar and he started to say something along the lines of, I have a problem with Islam, he said, and I can tell it to you in four letters, I, S, I, and before he could complete that, uh, Kuyar cut him off and he said, stop. He said, I know what you're going to say. He said, but my religion has been hijacked. And I think he asked him if Greg could relate to the idea of his religion being hijacked by people who don't represent what he believed in. And uh, in fact, that was something that Greg could relate to. And so um, just thinking about people who he felt had you know, had distorted what the meaning of Christianity actually is. And so they developed a, a bond on that basis. They committed to each other to get to know one another's uh, places of worship. And so Kuyar went and visited and participated in the service at Greg's uh, church. And Greg went and visited and observed the service at Kuyar's mosque. Their friendship inspired many others within Braver Angels, and I think beyond but we've got a fair number of stories along those lines, as you can imagine. Two individuals, one named uh, Glenn Stanton and the other Sheila Clefcorn. But theirs is an unlikely friendship, too. Sheila, she was one of the first people married uh, after gay marriage was legalized in the state of Arizona. Uh, Glenn uh, focused on the family, but they did connect and they formed a friendship that has lasted to this day. I know that this is true for Greg and Kuyar, and I'm sure that it's true for Sheila and Glenn. When you have a friendship like that, particularly if you are a sort of a somewhat politically visible person, um, you have a lot of people in your life who will try and get you to break that relationship, or at the very least, will be very skeptical of you for being willing to, you know, go that far in entertaining the, you know, the dignity and even having an affection and an ongoing rapport with somebody whose political beliefs might be seen as an active threat. To, to you or to your community or to the interests uh, of the country uh, in, the, in the eyes of other folks, right? Um, one of the reasons we adopted the name Braver Angels is because we came to realize that, you know, in order to build these relationships between the American people, it requires empathy, but it requires more than empathy. It actually requires courage, you know? There's a real degree of social courage that's necessary if you're going to stand in this gap and say, you know, I think that this person is supporting policies or politicians that could ruin the country, but nevertheless, you know, this person is my neighbor, this person is my friend, my brother, my sister, this is somebody who I'm going to honor uh, as a fellow American and as a fellow human being, and who I'm going to try and reason and work, work together with uh, towards creating a better society. That is a very hard thing for some folks to stomach, and even folks who sympathize with us, you know, they, they a lot of times they've got a sort of you know, engage the possibility that they will be, uh, you know, they'll, they'll be criticized in that way, which is a tough thing. But that's why standing on courage and bravery in the context of building bridges is just such an important thing for us to do. 
I really respect that. And I'm so glad you brought that up. And, you know, at Civity, we, we, and I'm sure you say it there too, we talk, it's, it's so important to name things and call it out. And by naming and calling out the fact that bravery and courage are a part of this work and that, that it really is necessary to get through it, you know, with some sort of being able to stick to it is, is, is really important. And I can think about in my own life. I mean, I have friends who, you know, I'm progressive or middle of the road slash progressive. And I have friends who are, you know, evangelical conservative all across the spectrum. And I love, obviously love them. And for me, there's another layer to, you know, I'm, I'm in an interracial relationship. And so also learning on the more progressive side that um, some of the things that I think are academic or that I think are conceptual, my partner feels very physically or immediately threatened by some of those things. And, and so courage and also the willingness to really just sit back and, or as uh, I don't know if you watch the Bill Burr Saturday Night Live, but to sit back and take, take my talking to, and, and also to, to, um, to process what, what people are really trying to say and what they really have to offer and and to try to make connections that way. I don't know. I mean, I'm rambling a little, but I think a lot of what you said, it's really important in in the context we find ourselves in for me to try to navigate those social relationships and threads and try to weave them together while honoring where everyone comes from. It feels like it's complicated to say that's just because the reality is a bit complicated, I think. Um, you know, I mean, I think one of the things that may be appealing about just sort of embracing a more kind of tribal polarized um, demeanor is just that it's simpler <laughs> ultimately. I think that many of us have an intuitive sense that a person's politics don't necessarily, necessarily define their deeper character, but acting on that con conviction out in the world, especially depending on the context in which you as an individual may be operating, uh, is a very difficult thing. And so I think that there's this temptation to sort of stereotype and, and simplify in a way that more or less takes what you consider to be the, you know, the negative impact of a person's politics and use that to define your understanding of them as a human being, fundamentally, or as an appropriate enough stand-in for that to where that gives you license to think of and, and treat folks with certain opinions accordingly, right? It's very easy to slip into that. And in addition to the sort of just honest and organic way in which that attitude might arise just through not understanding how and why it is a person could be that way, could think that way, there are all sorts of artificial sort of structurally reinforced motivations for that thinking uh, in the context of how it is the media operates, how the media kind of benefits from the dividing of the American people, the way in which politicians and political parties increasingly operate, and the way in which they are able to maintain bases of support through essentially ensuring that not enough nuance interferes to get people to kind of think outside of a certain partisan box that might threaten, you know, ownership of a certain constituency, right? I mean, all of these things uh, reinforce on a, you know, sort of a structural level something of an institutional need to keep the American people divided. And so, you know, in addition to the natural kind of social headwinds that, that exist now, and that's to say nothing at all about social media and then, you know, various other things. But in addition to those natural sorts of headwinds, because life has become more complicated, socially more complicated, America is more diverse, its challenges are in, in a sense more intricate than maybe they were in decades past in terms of fostering social understanding and so forth, we are also having to contend with the fact that 
major institutions in our society are more or less dedicated to a certain uh, certain model, right? And so that's why I use the word infrastructure in terms of building up an infrastructure for rehabilitating the relationships of the American people. Brave Angels is a membership organization. Right now, we've got 11 or 12,000 or so dues-paid members across the country, I think close to 60 or so local Brave Angels Alliance chapters. We have presence on college campuses. We've got a fledgling uh, media network, podcasts, videos, writers, so on and so forth, our social media team. Um, but an increasingly wide range of, of partners who we are going to be working with, uh, including in the aftermath of the election, to put forward organizing containers for people to get involved in if they want to help keep peace in their community in the potential event of violence following a contested election. We are literally in the you know, early stages of building out a national infrastructure that can sustain relationship between the American people, not just as individuals, but between groups and within sectors of society and within institutions. That's great. No, that's great. And, I, and you know, in addition to all of those external factors you mentioned that are um, seeking to keep things simple, that's how our brains work, too. I mean, it's so much easier to look at black and white stuff than to, than to it's exhausting sometimes to think about the nuance and to have to grapple with that when I'm so busy. Like, I have a good friend who's got six kids and who's not my, we have different political affiliations, but she'll say to me, look, can you just tell me which Republican to vote for? I don't have time. And, <laughs> and, and I'm like, yeah, sure. So I'll go over it with her. But she's busy. I mean, it's not necessarily that she wants to ignore this information, but she's got so much else she has to focus on. And so I think, you know, internally, the way our brains work, and then of course, all of those systems play on that. Um, and that's why I also appreciate that Braver Angels is naming the idea of institutions and systems because they're such a part of our world and we don't always recognize that. We focus on individuals. We focus on the current president who's so polarizing, but there's a whole system around that. And um, and so talking about a system to do different things, I think is important to be explicitly saying that. And it's so nice to hear that Braver Angels is doing that. And even if you look at uh, President Trump as a uniquely polarizing uh, political figure, which you know he, he is, even if you support him, I think you'd have to concede that. But it's also true, he, he revealed patterns that were already in place. And on the institutional level, what he did was, you know, he took advantage of that very kind of, you know, model of investment in polarization that was present with both the political parties, but also the media to begin with, right? I mean, he, you know, he, he knew that he would be able to keep the attention of a, a media that had built up its ability to sustain itself commercially by appealing, one, to people's divisions and two to just general sensationalism right um in that context you know trump sort of i think understood that he was perfectly designed to to keep the public imagination um in thrall while also you know drawing very clear lines even within the republican party in terms of who the good guys were and who the bad guys were and really hitting those distinctions very hard you know i mean people of course focus on things that he said about immigrants and, and, and various groups. But I mean, he made enemies out of the Republican establishment, out of the Bushes, out of John McCain, and so on and so forth. I mean, he was drawing lines everywhere he went. Because I think he, he understood that, you know, drawing those lines, identifying who the bad guys were, but then, you know, putting himself forward as, as the hero of the situation. I mean, it's just sort of a simple formula for gathering people uh, around him, right? And, and that's not to say that he was right or wrong in anything else he might have been saying politically, but that psychology, right, is something that I think he just understood as well or better than anybody else and had 
very few reservations about exploiting. And so that's not so much a condemnation of Donald Trump as it is a recognition of the fact that the system that allows for a, any candidate like that to just go right to the top of the pack is a system that we seriously need to look at and understand, you know, how can we build something that begins to correct for the motivations that are built in here? Yeah, yeah. One thing I saw on Braver Angels that I really actually want to call out in a good way is I really appreciate that Braver Angels commits to a red-blue model or a comprehensive model of funding. Because I know that there can be a lot of money on one side or another, but that there is an effort to ensure that funding is coming from diverse sources. And and even if people don't feel that they're um, influenced by funding or th things like that, we, we all can be. And of course, there's the perception uh, that exists. And so I think just the fact that uh, Braver Angels calls that out uh, that this is a commitment is something I'm really appreciative of. It is in line with the with the larger principles of the organization. I mean, from the very beginning, we have sought to be uh, half red, half blue in our sources of funding, as you said, in our leadership on the board level, uh, in terms of staff, even with our volunteer leadership. Um, and our, our membership is bipartisan too. Um, we have got more, more blue members than red members, but it is bipartisan and growing on both sides. Um, and of course, one thing I always want to emphasize too is that Braver Angels is all, also very much a place uh, for independence and for people in the middle who may not see themselves as definitively left or right. As a matter of fact, you've got a lot of folks like that in the organization uh, as well. And you know, that, that's ultimately because I, we just can't be successful in building this infrastructure of relationships with the people who are doing the building are not also gathered sort of from across the spectrum of identities. And so, you know, we are always trying to diversify more and more, not just with respect to our partisan balance, uh, but also with respect to ethnicity and just our general sort of demography, right? That is a project in and of itself. On the class level, we want to get more working class folks involved, and that can be harder because you know, it's easier if you're retired and have financial security to maybe develop more of your time to uh, to a project like this, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a student, you may have other things going on and, you know, not have much money for a membership or what have you. But um, but we're active on all these fronts, though, and it's important that we that we be so. One of the phrases I saw on your website was patriotic empathy. And empathy is hugely important. I think it's important important as well. But there is some interesting research out there about um, empathy can be a great thing or it can be utilized to divide. So if I have empathy for my group, that means that I have a lot, I could have a lack of empathy for quote outsiders or quote people who are othered. So I, I thought that patriotic empathy phrasing was really interesting and unique. I think that that was a phrase that I may have just said or used off the cuff once that, uh, I think maybe my boss sort of grabbed a hold of and said, oh, this is this is good. Let's use this more. The way I define patriotic empathy is to say that your love for your country is demonstrated by your concern for your neighbor or your concern for your fellow American, right? And obviously, you know, regardless of where your fellow American may fall on the political, on the political spectrum, I frame so much of my work and my thinking about this work uh, as do, as does much of Braver Angels as a community and an organization through the prism of, of nonviolence, Martin Luther King Jr.'s philosophy, which begins with this idea that love is a social value that can be used to speak to the conscience of the opposition, of the person who disagrees with you. And uh, Dr. King defined love as, in this context, as essentially being goodwill. You know, this idea that even in disagreement, 
you are seeking the greater good, not just of yourself and your group, but for those who disagree with you or who may stand against your position as well. And so that's sort of the fundamental kind of virtue that we try to, that we're seeming to capture in a phrase like patriotic empathy and from which we operate in the context of our work. Um, when I think of the utility of empathy, I definitely think of empathy as, you know, it's certainly something that is necessary for in-group relationships, but it, it allows us to progress morally in a way that is of greater and greater benefit to the world when we were able to extend that uh, to the outgroup. And of course, it's more challenging to do that a lot of times too. So you've got to do the work, uh, as folks uh, say, of getting to know and understand, you know, the perspective and the experiences of folks who are coming from a different uh, point of view. And so kind of understanding how to go about that and so forth is uh, a big part of the skill set uh, of relationship building that we need to need to learn in America. And it's, you know, it's complicated, but we're we're building structures to help people do it. If someone wanted to get involved with Braver Angels in general, uh, but also in particular in your effort around the post-election um, nonviolence work, how might they do that? Uh, we would ask people to do a couple of things. One, we have a public letter that just released, and there's a, a featured article in USA Today that highlighted this. It's basically a call to America to uh, look past violence, to put aside violence as a means of responding or influencing the upcoming election, and to recommit to working alongside one another, to uplift the spirit of our democracy, and to rebuild the relationships that will allow us to strive towards a more perfect union. We want as many folks in this country as possible to sign that letter, to make a statement that this is something that the American people are willing to stand for. When you do so, uh, to take the opportunity too to sign up to host a workshop uh, in your own community, to host a what we call a Hold America Together group, HATS for short, right? The Hold America Together group, that's right, uh, in your own community to help folks, to help your friends, to help your neighbors. Or, by the way, this is also something you can do via Zoom with people who live outside of your geographic area too. Uh, but to basically uh, give yourself the opportunity with folks that you trust to process what you've just been through in the election, to process how everybody is feeling, and to explore options uh, for getting involved in a constructive, nonviolent way uh, to help keep the peace in the aftermath of, of Election Day. And, and, you know, hopefully that won't be something that's so terribly necessary. Um, but, you know, we've done some recent polling at Brave Angels um, that show that, you know, over half of Americans think that it might be necessary, right? Better to be prepared and, and not need to be than, than to have it go the other way. We'd love for civity folks to, to take a look and get involved. Is there anything uh, that I haven't asked you that you'd like to say that you think it's important for people to know? In the midst of all of this um, chaos and perhaps um, cynicism or at least skepticism over the future, what I see around me is the building of a genuine movement of unity in this country. Not unity in terms of uniformity on uh, political issues, but a deeper unity over what values and virtues should bind us as a people, right? Virtue of goodwill extending across differences and this idea that seeking one another's well-being is the greater expression of patriotism. Uh, I see organizations uh, like yours, people like you, Gina, and uh, like uh, just friends and associates and folks, groups, all across this country who are working together in this spirit, who are just more and more coming to be aware of each other, right? Because that's the interesting thing. In this space, I mean, I can go down a list of organizations and think tanks and other folks who are doing work that folks should be aware of, National Conversations Project, Weave the Social Fabric Project, the American 
project uh, out of out of Pepperdine, people who were involved in politics, people who were podcasters and YouTubers and so on and so forth. Cornell West, Robert P. George, some well-known influential figures like that. People are driving in this direction where they want to rediscover sort of the animating spirit of goodwill that would motivate, I think, a larger, you know, uh, move towards the beloved community in Dr. King's terminology. There are people who are seeking that and they are finding each other. And what I think that means is that you will see a renaissance of, of people organizing around goodwill in American politics uh, before too long. And what comes from that is, um, you know, hard to say exactly, but it gives me hope, you know, because uh, I see it happening. And I even take this conversation as some evidence in that direction. Thank you so very much. Thank you to my guest, John Wood Jr., National Ambassador for Braver Angels. Civity's theme song is Common Ground, performed by Tommy Castro and the Painkillers, written by Tommy Castro and Kevin Bowe, and used courtesy of Alligator Records and Dangerous Entertainment. Thank you for listening to This Is Civity. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.